Hello, and welcome to Cardography, the podcast that blends Magic the Gathering and game design. I'm your host, Jake Mosby, better known as PR in the custom magic community. And this is episode 16, Sensation Gorger. Our guest this week is none other than Trevor Cashmore, better known as an animate on uh, Discord, Goblin Artisans, and elsewhere in the community. And he's here today to discuss with us what he calls experiential design, so designing experiences. Trevor, how's it going? Good. I'm glad to be here. It's an honor. Awesome. So before we get in the weeds, let's get a sense of who you are and uh, what you've done with uh, Custom Magic so far. So how did you get involved in Magic uh, just to begin with? Well, when I was a little kid, my brother actually played Magic. I was like eight years old. And he loved magic. He was in there really early on in the community, and he would go to tournaments and everything. But all I knew about magic was that it had forks, lightning bolts, and walls, and I thought it was like kitchen forks. <laughs> so the game sounded pretty boring to me, except for the lightning bolts. I didn't really get into it for a long time. It, it took me until high school, where a bunch of my friends were playing, and I realized how amazing it was that I actually got into it. And that was around New Phyrexia and Zendikar. I think that's part of why I got really into the designing of experiences, because New Phyrexia was a really well-done set in that regard. For sure, yeah, and we'll definitely talk about which sets have uh, really gone all in on the whole design of an experience uh, when we get kind of into that topic. Exactly. Um, so, you know, you kind of got involved in Magic around that time frame. Uh, what got you interested in custom design? Um. I've always been interested in game design since I was a kid. When I was little, I, I was really into all kinds of card games. I, I never checked out Magic for a long time. I don't know why, but I was into Yu-Gi-Oh! I was into Pokemon. And eventually I started designing my own games. I would have graph paper, and I would just doodle in the middle of class and figure out game mechanics, and they were all terrible. None of them were fun. But I tried and I tried, and by the time I got to Magic, it was I think I learned how to play Magic one day, and the next day, while I was still learning how to play Magic, I was already coming up with cards. I was just instantly realizing how much potential there was to come up with your own designs when it comes to magic. And they were all terrible. They all sucked. But I did immediately start thinking this is this would be great to make up some designs for. And that's a part of the beauty of magic because it has so much openness that it's really easy to get into the custom magic part of it. Kind of unusual, actually, to just be designing new stuff right off the bat. That's really cool. Yeah. I, it, it just came from the fact that I've always been into game design. All my friends are game designers. Uh, my history's always been through game design. Every single online community I've joined has been about game design. Mm -hmm. So it was just instinct. So would you say that, uh, I mean, you talked about New Phyrexia. Would you say that that was your favorite format or what, what's been your favorite format in Magic so far? My favorite format that I've actually played was probably Innistrad. We did get to do, um, way after the fact, after it came out, we had a bunch of leftover Innistrad cards and we made our own pool to draft from. Mm because we couldn't get any booster packs. And just from what we drafted from, with just those, like that second hand Innistrad, it was so fun. And the constructed of Innistrad, the one I started with when I first really got into it, I had a uh, Rune Chanter Pike deck, and that was nice. really fun to build around. And I had a Livewire Lash deck. The Livewire Lash deck was great. Kiln Fiend is still my favorite card to this day. So many people have a soft spot for that card. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's it, it's just such a lovely design. It's it, it, I don't know it and We Dragonauts are two of my favorite cards. I definitely have a big penchant for prowess and other things like that. Yeah, they were really the predecessors to prowess, and I think that Wizards kind of realized that they had struck lightning with that. Yeah, quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about Tesla 
the project that you were very much involved in starting out on. Yeah. I guess Tesla was a kind of a community project that started with the Goblin Artisans blog. You want to talk about how, how things got started with that? Yeah. Um, Goblin Artisans was, from the very beginning, a community effort. The entire goal of it was to design a community set. The idea was we wanted to get more of an understanding of the actual difficulties and intricacies that game that I mean uh, set designs have to go through for wizards. And so from the very beginning there was no deadline. There was no time limit. It was simply like we all we wanted was just to really experience how intricate a, a set design has to be when you have multiple people working together and you're striving towards a certain goal. From there, we eventually collaboratively decided upon a steampunk idea, which we called Tesla. So it was kind of electric, galvanic punk or whatever. But And we had multiple people handle it. Uh, I can't remember who originally started it, uh, who was originally the one handling it. I think it was like Metaghost or something or Havelock. But eventually it switched to Jules Robbins, mm-hmm. who had just joined the blog to specifically handle it. And he now works at Wizards, act- like actually works at Wizards. As an, I think he's an intern right now. So, yeah, he's doing quite well for himself. Wow. And when he actually left to go work for Wizards, I got to take over as lead designer of Tesla, simply because I wrote really, really long po- comments in every single article about my thoughts on stuff, and they liked that. So that got me noticed, and that got me as lead designer. Very cool. So as lead designer, then, uh, what kind of roles and responsibilities did you take on? You know, I, I'm aware that like there was a lot of exploratory design that went on pretty early in the process yeah exploratory design was really the longest part of the process which is pretty revealing of how real world design would probably work and that it's really easy to keep coming up with ideas and to keep trying to perfect something and master it but eventually you got to lock into onto a mechanic and the the majority of my time as lead designer of tesla uh before i had to leave the position and hand it over to uh reuben covington um the majority of my time was spent on the exploratory design part, and that's what makes this really relevant to the discussion today about experiential design, because that's the majority of what I was focusing on. It was my specialty, figuring out how to capture the experiences that we set out to do with a steampunk set, and what experiences you'd expect out of that. That took months. I think it, only, it even took years at that point. I'm pretty sure the project was going on for at least three years now, because I started June of 2015. Eventually, we decided just to move on from exploratory design, but it, it definitely is the most grueling part of any design project, I think. So what made you realize or you know, conclude that you were done enough with exploratory design to move on? What was kind of the trigger for that? Yeah, as lead de- so as lead designer, the, I don't have any more votes than any, anyone in particular. Like My ideas have just as much credits as anyone else, but my role is to, to make executive decisions. I have to lock in things. And if it really comes down to it and we're at a tie, I'm the one who has to choose between stuff. But I usually prefer to rely on my team and the people in the comments and stuff, which who are the team, to decide mechanics and everything like that. But even though there was no deadline, even though we had no official looming ending or like it wasn't like the real world where we actually have like to release the set at some point, I just figured at one at some point we've fi- we've already figured out every idea that we want to capture every single concept that we want in the set what experience we want to cultivate and from there i went well we've identified what we're out to set for now and we have a pretty solid suite of mechanics and you can theory craft about mechanics all day you can do it infinitely but at some point you got to play test and that's when i locked in we're going to we're going back to play testing because we had been play testing throughout the process jules hosted lots of play tests but they were very much 
putting mechanics through their rigor rather than actually testing things. And that's like actually testing the set. And that's what I decided we need to start doing is to actually evaluate what mechanics are best, we just start actually creating cards, putting them together, and even if it ends up not perfect, we're at least putting things through their paces and figuring out if our exploratory design is really going to work out. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned a few times in there about designing for an experience. So what specific experience were you trying to cultivate for players? The very first article I did after I got the position was actually specifically about the experience. We decided relatively early on that Tesla was going to be about two themes. And I think theme is a little vague of a word there, but because we were really trying to capture emotions and experiences. Um, one of them was a big theme, and it was progress. So we wanted people to feel like that their board state was developing. Now, obviously, in every game of Magic, your board state develops. You get more lands, you get more creatures, you get bigger creatures, you get better spells. But we really wanted to emphasize that even the things you play on turn one could get better. They could improve. They could change things. That you were always going up and forwards. But the other theme we had, anticipation, that was really more of an experience. That's an emotion that you want to create in the player, to help them be immersed in the setting. We wanted people to feel like they were working on a project, that they were working towards a goal, towards a conclusion of something. So we wanted them to anticipate something. We wanted them to be looking forward to the future. And there's lots of mechanics that can feel like progress, like devotion, for example, but they emphasize looking at something you've already done. Threshold, for example, yeah, it, it triggers when you've progressed through the game a bit, but it makes you look back to the past, literally. It's called the graveyard. And that didn't feel like anticipating or looking towards the future at all. You're, you're eagerly awaiting when you trigger threshold, but it doesn't capture that emotion of, of looking ahead to the unknown. Right, so you were very much focused on you know the looking forward aspect. So you, you mentioned that you were designing towards emotions or experiences. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the line between those two things? The experience is kind of the sum of multiple emotions. So, for example, um, we wanted to create the, the experience of being an inventor, of working on something. And so we had to identify what does it feel like to be an inventor? What emotions are in the person who is an inventor? And we decided, okay, anticipating. You're looking forward to something. But is it certain? Or is it uncertain? Are you waiting or are you hoping? So does it make more sense for an inventor to have an outline and to know what their conclusion is going to be or for them to discover, to be excited and to have that really big moment, that epiphany? And really, it could be both. We, we did end up including both ideas in the set, waiting and hoping. Every set's got to have a little bit of them. But those are the two things we really emphasized. Um, in any set, you have to identify that kind of emotion. If you really want to create an experience that lasts and resonates with players, you have to be able to identify the immersion of a set. To make it feel like an actual developed world isn't just about the flavor text on your cards or about how the mechanics are top-down. Like in Innistrad, the experience is about feeling afraid, about being a victim, about always looking out for monsters in every corner. There are literally cards in that set that, in their art, they emphasize the perspective of you being the victim, like in Village Cannibals, for example, or in Avatar Ghoul, where it's looking at you, directly at you through the card. Cultivating that emotion in the players is a big part of why Innistrad was such a success. It was really one of the first truly successful top-down sets, and it's what rejuvenated that entire design method. And I think that's very strongly because it's probably the pinnacle of experiential design. 
So when we're talking about experiential design, we're talking about the set giving the the audience, right, the player, a specific role. And in, in, in Istrad's case, that role is victim. Yes. In all these sets, I, I, I think that's a great way to put it. The player has to have a role. There are top-down sets, but they that didn't cultivate such a role. And like, so for example, in Zendikar, uh, I, Zendikar is an experiential set. I actually think they did it without even realizing they were doing it, because it was a top-down set. But I think by looking at the mechanics they had picked that were all themed around land, they actually started accidentally creating a really strong experience. And that's probably where the top-down flavor came from. Because you know, with landfall, you're constantly hoping that you're going to get a land off the top of your deck. And it, it, it's very much a big moment of excitement when you pull up the card and look at it and go, that's a land. I got my land. And, and very much just through its mechanics started cultivating that feel. And that very simple mechanical feeling of waiting to get your land really strongly started pushing players towards feeling like explorers. It's a land you're waiting for. Towards feeling like risk-taking explorers, Indiana Jones, because it, it's an exciting moment of hoping that you're going to get that land. And then, like, you know, obviously, there's other sets that vastly better cultivated the theme. Like, Theros really strongly puts players in the roles of a hero's journey as hero and monster. But then there's also other sets where they tried to go for it, like Cons of Tarkir, where they really tried to make the players feel like warlords vying for position on the con- on the battlefield, but they didn't emphasize it enough with their individual cards. They didn't create enough of a theme with the mechanics. So even though there is an experience there, it's definitely a set that strongly relates to combat and multiple mechanics it never really came together as because it never really put you in a single role and other mechanics diluted that role that it placed you in so let's talk a bit about why creating a role for players is or isn't important Um, Mm -hmm. so is there a particular side of that argument that you'd like to come down on oh it is important strongly you can make a set without the role. Like there are very obviously fantastic sets that do not have an apparent role. Like Kansa Tarkir, not a super great experimental design. It didn't give players a strong role. I doubt if you ask people what the experience it was trying to cultivate was. I don't think many people would realize it was all about the combat. And yeah, people would know morph and all that, but I don't think that experience would come through. But it's still a fantastic set. But I think that the difference between like a, a great set and like a masterpiece, like Innistrad, it's that additional layer that really resonates with the player. Even sets that are a little problematic in other ways can be really helped through this experience. And I think that it, it's that difference between a pre, like the liking of a set, the, the playing it for the mechanics, and the loving a set. Being able to really say that's something that struck me, that stru- that hit a chord with me. So I would say that there are kind of two blocks, in recent memory at least, that don't capture that kind of experiential, like you are mm-hmm. something, maybe maybe two and a half. Uh, so the first one you've already brought up is Cons of Tarkir. Mm-hmm. You know, is relatively considered to be, you know, it's got some flaws, but it's generally considered to be a good set. Yes. The other one that comes immediately to mind is the Return to Ravnica block. You know, you're not really pushed into being a specific role you're just kind of joining a guild. And, you know, I'd say that Return to Ravnica was still relatively successful, largely off of the back of original Ravnica. You know, and I think, I do think that they tried to go with an experience for Cons of Tarkir. Like I said, all the mechanics actually tie very strongly to a theme of combat. It started as a bottom-up set. They really wanted to make a new set with Morph that had, that really excelled with the three-set structure. And, when they started with Morph, they started thinking, what can we do with Morph? And they started with Combat. And then they started building other mechanics that go well with Combat once it became a faction set. So you got Raid, which is very obviously about Combat. Proos, which is about Combat Tricks. 
uh, Delve, which turns anything that dies in combat into fuel for your spells. So it actually has a... It's very subtle, but it does have a relation to combat. And then Ferocious also relatively works well with combat tricks and with anything else that buffs things for combat. Since it specifically cares about power, that really implies that you want to be attacking. And Outlast is a replacement. Originally, you were supposed to be able to attack, or I don't remember what it was. It was like uh, bulk up or something like that. Or I guess we can just call it Outlast. It was supposed to be a choice between attacking and outlasting. And that choice really emphasized that it's directly related to combat. In its modern, well, in its final form, that connection's lost. It's not as clear that it was a choice between attacking and outlasting. But it really cemented originally that their role was directly relevant to combat, that they were the people who stepped out of combat and waited and endured. Um, the problem with, well, not the problem, but the thing that led both Konzatarkir and Return to Ravnica away from experience is that they're gold sets. They're also victims of the kind of disease of mechanic bloat, where all of them had a lot of mechanics to track. And when you're designing so many mechanics, it gets very difficult to start cultivating a unique experience for the players. They're also faction sets. So by virtue, you're kind of supposed to identify with one of the factions, first and foremost. And the factions did try to cultivate a little bit of an experience, but it was more... It was more straightforward. They didn't get to have the emotional nuance or depth that other sets did. But I do agree that neither set had the emotional depth or the immersion that I would really call them experience-based sets. I think Konzatark here tried to do that, but it just it couldn't capture it right. So as you're talking about that, I was realizing that I think that the major difference between these sets and the other kind of half set that I was going to bring up, Scars of Mirrodin, um, is that with these sets with Khans, Ravnica, and Mirrodin, the experience that Wizards was trying to produce was specific and internal to that plane or that world. Whereas with Zendikar, with Innistrad, you know, with Kaladesh, and even with Theros, the experiences that we were basically thrown into as the audience, as the players, is it, it transcends magic, right? Uh, you're, you're an explorer. That's something that exists in our world. You're a victim. That's something that, you know, you're, you're a hero on a journey. Or you're an inventor. You know, those are all things that we experience outside of magic or, or that humanity at large does, right? Whereas being part of a Ravnican guild or being a Mirrodin besieged by Phyrexians, being a warlord fighting against dragons... Those are things that are really specific to magic. I, I, I agree with that. It's definitely a part of the faction problem. And that if you're starting to create a faction, you have to really do it mechanically. You have to do it sometimes color-based, like Scars of Mirrodin blocked in. And you have to keep very simple. You can't let the theme get too unobvious. So in Return to Ravnica block and in Concept Dark Here block, it was very clearly related to the mechanics and to their their defining word. Like all the Concept Dark Here Factions had that one word, like endure or uh, speed or whatever they were, cunning, things like that. When you have to stick to a single word like that, it can start making the, the experience get very vapid. It doesn't even start to feel like an experience. You don't get that immersion. And it's just like writing a story. And you know, if you want to make a good story, it's got to have a universal theme that everybody can understand. With Innistrad, you get that feeling of tension and suspense, That you know those moments in the real world or with horror movies that people kind of go, yeah, I felt like that sometimes. I, I've, I felt that sting of dread where I know that something bad's going to happen. And 
with Theros, you get to feel heroic. You get to you get to feel those triumphant moments that you have. You get to feel that sense of overcoming an obstacle you didn't think you could do it, or getting something in the nick of time right before it was about to go south. Resonating with those very powerful emotions is a big deal for a game. When it when it really comes down to it, our entire goal is to make players feel something, to make them rejoice in something, or to feel relief, or to escape. If you can't make your game do something like that, like it's still fine as just a logical game. Like chess is a fine game, right? But I would argue that I much prefer Magic to chess, and I think it's precisely because it has flavor, it has stories, it has emotion. So we've been talking about immersive experience and what immersion in a Magic set really means. And as I was, you know, researching and preparing for this episode, uh, I came across an article that was essentially from a bunch of you know game de- like video game designers and like VR designers uh, about how to make a world immersive. So one of the things that I think is most relevant to this conversation was that you have to be clear about what your expectations from the audience are. So it's interesting that you're expecting things from the audience. What they're really talking about with this point is that you expect the audience to take up the role of like you know, the, the chosen one or, um, you know, that kind of thing in video games is a really common thing with magic can kind of translate this into, you have to pick a specific thing, um, in order to make the player feel immersed in the world. You know, they're taking up the mantle of the inventor or whatever else. Yeah. You have to cultivate that expectation in the player. And that's what the individual cards are for. Like, Obviously, if you just give them a list of the mechanics, they, they can generally get a sense of, okay, maybe this is supposed to reflect this feeling. But that's the problem of a card-based game. Just like, you know, Mark Rosewater's talked about this a lot with the difficulty of communicating a story through card. But luckily, emotions are a lot easier to capture through individual cards. As long as you create the set in such a way that almost all the cards at least capture some aspect of that emotional experience, you're doing a good job. Like, one of my favorite examples for this is New Phyrexia. In New Phyrexia, you have... The, the theme of feeling invaded. The Mirrodins have lost. Everybody on that plane is failing. They, they have, their plane has fallen to the bad guys. So you need the players to feel like they've lost. You need them to feel like they're, they're being invaded, that they're being violated in a sense. And that's a very negative experience. Uh, and the mechanics capture that. But what New Phyrexia did that was really well was everything in the set had some sense of violation in it. Like, there were the cards Canceller of the Spires, the Canceller of the Annex, all the Canceller cycle, that violated the very beginning of the game. Right when the game's beginning, you merely intrude upon the game. Stop the setup and go, wait, I have this. You have stuff like Psychic Surgery, where you get to ruffle through their deck and take cards out of it every time they shuffle. So you're always, like, prying into their deck. Cards like Despise, that you ruffle through their hand and take cards out of the hand. Uh, Due Respect forces them all to enter tapped and bow to you all these different cards it increases the chances of your players feeling that emotion of capturing that experience you you need those individual cards such that even if they end up with one card out of the set they still have that strong chance of feeling what that set was supposed to evoke and luckily this is a game you know even if you don't have any emotions even if your players do not get what you're trying to get across like what i think happened in concert tarkir um, it's still fun. You still, you still hopefully made fun cards that do fun things and that play together interestingly. So we have a very good backup case to fall upon where even if the experience falls flat, hey, at least you produced a fun game. So let's talk then about how we can actually capture that. 
So I've got a kind of a short list of my own here, but do you have any ideas that you want to start us out with? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, it really always comes down to playtesting. you got to have actual experience with the cards. It's really tough because the emotional experience aspect of it relies a lot on intuition and uh, just kind of ex- you need to have that intuition. You need to have that experience with actually playing cards and seeing how it feels. There's a lot of cards that you design it mechanically and you put a name on it and you go, oh, yeah, this feels about right. But then you actually start playing with it. You go, this doesn't feel right. Like, uh, and mm-hmm. you got you got to develop that intuition of what specific mechanics or actions that you perform in the game evoke certain feelings in the players. Sacrificing a permanent feels very wrong. If, if, there's a reason that new players avoid it. And you want to leverage that that feeling of aversion. That even experienced players who know that sacrificing permanence can be useful, even players who love the sacrificing permanence archetype and pursue it in every set it exists, it's always okay. going to feel a little off sacrificing your own guys. Paying life is the same way. So, for example, uh, the Lorado custom set. I was helping with it in the Discord. And mm-hmm. he had a card called Peaceful Pueblo that when it enters the battlefield, you gain a life, and it taps for white and blue mana. But every time you tap it, you lose one life. And I pointed out, that doesn't feel very Mm. peaceful. Losing life is not a peaceful thing. And I think if you design cards like that, even if they're perfectly mechanically sound, you you start undermining your emotional experience. That's a card that you could really emphasize. Lorado's a western set, so you can emphasize that it's a bleak and desolate land, that even getting mana out of your lands hurts you, that it takes effort. Being able to identify that emotion is tough. It, it, it's not something you can really study. Like, I could write up a list of common emotional experiences, but there's always exceptions. There's always things where you go, the sum of this card adds up to a different feeling than what you'd expect. And it's something that plagues a lot of amateur designers where they... Magic is a logical game. It is a tactical game, but it's not all about logic. There's psychology involved. So one of the big problems is that a lot of amateur designers that are that are good players love drawback mechanics and downside mechanics. Or they'll, they'll design things that look like a downside, even if they're not. So being able to, to playtest the cards and really identify what goes with what emotion, and to actually think emotionally, not just like writing notes critically or game design-wise, but thinking, what are these players feeling? How do they feel? How do I feel? While also being analytical and critical is a big part of developing an emotional experience. Yeah, engaging player emotions is definitely a huge part of actually creating something experiential. And I think another point that you got into kind of from my shortlist uh, with that conversation there was that you want to, if you can, you want to resonate off of pre-existing flavor or, you know, flavor outside of magic even, or something that already exists in player's headspace, right? So you want to be able to... Intuition. Yeah, exactly. The intuition part. For me, that kind of comes in with like like landfall, you were saying earlier, right? Finding that new land engages the player in that experience of exploring. And it really makes each of those landfall cards engage the player in feeling like they are an explorer. You know, they, they are Indiana Jones or whatever else, right? And... If you can create cards that resonate your flavor, then you're going to be in a good spot. The Peaceful Pueblo thing, that's a great counterexample where if you have an issue with your resonance, right? If, if the card and the mechanics aren't jiving correctly, it's going to cause players to disconnect from the world that, that you're building. Precisely. And the, it's very, it can be tough too. Like, 
there are definitely some cards that I've seen in sets where I go, okay, that that introduces nothing. Like in Kaladesh, there's a card that I can't remember. It's some beetles that every beginning of your upkeep you lose a life and they gain a counter. I don't know. That could have been a lot more resonant to the experience of inventors or progress or upgrading or whatever. But it's just some beetles. They have nothing to do with anything about the themes of feeling like an inventor. And I feel like that could that was a bit of a miss. Being able to identify individual cards that can really excel, that you're, you're going, this isn't really working, but I want it to work mechanically. Being able to figure out how does it feel to you when you play it can make a card that justifies itself. And along the lines of intuition, I think another important thing to mention is that it doesn't, these emotions, you can capture them through a lot of different ways. So one of the big examples of that, I, I love these things. I collect them, essentially. Whenever I see one, I go, I'm adding it to my list, is physical cards is what I call them. Cards with physicality. So Cellar Door in Innistrad is a great example of physicality. It's a cellar door. It's going to be on the bottom of your house, which is why you get the bottom card of your library. And when you get it, to get the bottom card of your library, you have to lift up the library. You have to squeeze it out. You might accidentally get two cards. You have to put it back, and it increases the tension. You're pulling it out delicately, putting down your library, careful not to look at anything else. You pick it up, and is it a creature card? If it's a creature card, you got your zombie. And mind you, you are usually – this is in a straw, so you can probably pick yourself sometimes, but – Outside of Innistrad, you might pick your opponent. And so they're delicately getting out, and they're dreading, like, this better not be a creature card. This better not be a creature card. It's a creature card. And that moment of dread really adds to the Innistrad experience. And it does it purely through physical stuff. That is the most intuitive you can probably get with a person. Even if they don't consciously recognize how it's making them feel, how it reflects the set, you're really gathering that physical action into a real emotion. It's important to point out too that with Cellar Door, you know, Innistrad doesn't have any real like scry effects or anything like that. So the top and the bottom are virtually the same in terms of like actual randomness, like what your odds are. Uh, but like you're saying, that physicality of going for the bottom card instead just adds so much more to the card. Precisely, yeah. And uh, from Shadows Over Innistrad, another great example is Sinister Concoction. Um, Sinister Concoction is a really weird design, and it does a lot in Shadows Over Innistrad. Discarding a card contributes to madness. Putting the top card of your library into your graveyard continue, uh, contributes to delirium. Sacrificing it contributes to delirium as well, adding an enchantment to your feel. You know? And it does a lot of things that do a lot of useful things for the mechanics of the set, but it might be a pretty tough sell in terms of flavor. So how do you flavor it? Well, you're taking a pinch off your life, uh, probably your dice, or maybe you know changing it with a pencil or something. Then you take the top card of your library, put it into your graveyard. Then you discard a card from your hand, and then you move this thing to your graveyard. Uh, you just moved three things into your graveyard, and you also had to move your hands around a lot. By putting them all into the graveyard, the art can, shows a cauldron. It feels like you're adding ingredients to your graveyard. It feels like you're moving around your little like shelves full of potions and stuff and taking pinches of things and putting together into a potion. Just that simple physicality of it really sells the flavor of the card. If you looked at it, you go, it's, it's like a list of ingredients. And then you play with it, and you go, it's like I'm brewing a potion. It really feels like it. And this brings me back to one of the other uh, key factors to an immersive experience and an immersive world mm -hmm. uh, is details making the world feel large. So when you get little details like this, you know, even with these individual cards, it makes the world that you've built 
feel large and immersive and you know engage players at a, a higher level yeah every single opportunity you have to provide an emotional experience you should try to seize upon you have a lot of cards in your set and not all of them are going to be able to provide this obviously you're, you're never going to have that complete experience in the set there's always going to be some cards that, ha- that really have to fill a mechanical role but when you can try to fill the mechanical role and the emotional role that was something that Tesla struggled with, was over time we got really dedicated to our archetypes, to our mechanics, to making it work mechanically, to the balance, to the need, to the set. And over time we started losing out on these individual things that really felt appropriate. We got really good at world building. It felt like a dystopian steampunk set that was about invention and stuff. But in terms of making the players feel like they were progressing or changing things or moving forwards or looking to the future, it it started being purely in the flavor and not as much in the mechanics. We weren't vigilant enough about the emotional roles of cards, and that made it difficult. And it's important to point out that the gameplay is really core to what we're trying to accomplish. You know, we want to be producing a good quality and you know a balanced format, you know, a fun mm-hmm. format. But I'm glad that you brought up too that more than just trying to stick together 250 cards. We're trying to make a set, and a set is more than just a collection of cards. It's cards that all push you in a certain direction, make you feel a certain way. Yeah. And if you miss out on that direction or that feeling, you know, you've just got a collection of cards. Yeah, and, you know, collections of cards are fine. Modern master sets are collections of cards, and cubes are collections of cards very often, just strong, powerful, exciting cards. But there's a gulf between sets like – obviously, Innishrod's considered a masterpiece. It's the pinnacle of sets to many people. And there's a reason for that. It's not just that it had very tight, simple mechanics for the most part. It's not that it had very good archetypes that all tie together and every card usually had a role in the set. It's also that the players felt something so strongly and intimately. Even if they didn't – even if I, I, even if they couldn't tell me how it reinforced the set, they still feel it. That's the power of the emotional experience is that it's usually going to be alongside the gameplay. It's usually going to play fun because it actively creates an emotion that contributes to fun. And it doesn't need to be consciously recognized. It's not a logical thing. These people are going to be secretly given a better experience without even knowing it sometimes. I I really feel like a player has to come out of this. Someone has to come out of every story with something changed about them, with something that left a mark on their soul, however small or large. And I think a good magic set tells a story. It doesn't have to be a linear story. It doesn't even have to be a story with characters. It has to be a story starring you. Every game has to feel like you overcame something, that you triumphed, or that you failed. But you failed in style, or you failed with a strong emotional core to it. And that is the key to creating a very compelling game, is that emotional component. It's that you crafted a story where you are the star. That's why we play games, to be the star. That's a great point. Uh, It leads back into yet another one of these immersive experience notes that I've got, um, where these VR game designers were saying that you really need to create a space where people can project themselves into. And that's exactly what you're talking about here. People want to actually put themselves into the the role of either the hero or whatever else and really put themselves in the world that you've built for them to jump into and you know obviously there's abstractions there but that's one of those keys to immersion is being able to actually dive in and exactly be the star 
It's really it's it's what makes some sets really cool is that um, I think two great examples of this would be Innistrad and Zendikar. I'll talk about Zendikar because we've already talked about Innistrad a lot. Zendikar is capturing the feeling of being a dare like daring escapades, pulp fiction style, you know, two fisted tales, traveling around ancient temples and locking ancient secrets. And a big part of Zendikar is that I am going to get really cool, exciting things on my turn. I'm going to be the hero of my story, and I'm going to be the one unleashing all these things. And on your turn, I get my traps to try to take you down while you're being the exciting hero. Notice that traps are emphasized on your opponent's turn. You become mm-hmm. the, the natural obstacle. You become the temple or whatever. And on your turn, you get to be the star. You get to be the hero. It very naturally switches where you always get to contribute to the other player's story. You always get to add to their odds that they're facing against. And you get to, to be the triumphant one on your turn. As a competitive game, you can still make a collaborative experience out of it. You can have one where both players had fun, even though one person has to win and one person has to lose. Where both players were the stars of their own story. So let's get back into the how and how uh, listeners can really yeah. take this lesson into their own works. Um, so... One thing that I think is really important is that, you know, inevitably your mechanics are going to have to abstract away from, you know, becoming the star or, you know, whatever the star ends up meaning for your set, whether you're the star inventor or the star explorer, right? You're going to need to abstract away from that at some point, but you need to have the abstraction still make sense. And kind of what I, what I mean with this is like with heroic from Theros, mm-hmm. a lot of people, uh, a lot of amateur designers have this kind of core idea, especially like with the Norse sets that people make where, you know, you go into combat and you die in combat and you, now you're drinking with Odin um, and you, you were valorous or whatever, right? With Theros, you know, you still have the hero, the the notion of the hero, Mm -hmm. but rather than having it be super combat oriented. So the risk and the reason why you go with heroic instead of something more combat oriented is that when you go into combat, your hero is very, very likely to die. And you aren't able to actually see that progression of the hero's journey and the sense of overcoming obstacles, right? So what Heroic actually does is every time that that creature has something happen to it, right? Uh, you're kind of teaching it. You're, you're having it go through some kind of experience and come out stronger for it. And that's kind of the abstraction that Heroic takes to still connect on that flavor element of the hero's journey. I think that's a great point about the Norse thing, is that you look at the word heroic, and it's a very specific kind of heroic. Theros tries to capture the hero's journey, and identifying what kind you're trying to capture is important. You can't just say you're an explorer. You've got to figure out, well, what does an explorer mean here? With Theros, we're trying to tell a specific story. I think Theros is actually very interesting in that you have multiple roles in the same set, gods, monsters, and heroes. And they identify, we need heroes that that grow, that have a journey, that develop. But if you were saying like a superhero magic set, superheroes already start completed. You very rare, like unless it's an origin story set, I guess. But for the most part, heroes don't have multiple beats to their story. They have a a change, their origin story, or they are already Superman, you know, already ready to fight monsters and bad guys. So even though it's called heroic, you have to capture that individual identity. Now, for the question of getting to the mechanical core of it, identifying how to shift from your initial idea of this is what a hero is into other ideas of what a hero is. It's it's really, you can justify a lot through flavor. 
that, that's a common problem, actually, when people justify too much with flavor and end up with color breaks or things that are just not fun, right? But you need to identify what emotional role you want and then identify what things connect that role. Having an intuitive sense of, okay, well, when I, if I want to capture things that are positive, plus one, plus one counters, you know, bonuses, buffs, new keywords, uh, life gain, things like that, and then negatives are sacrificing life loss, uh, discarding, things like that. If you want to capture progression, you got to think of things that add to the board, things that increase numbers, drawing cards, playing, playing permanence, lands dropping onto the battlefield, more cards in your graveyard. In Aether Revolt, um, this is a big, this is a big thing. You designed a really fun, exciting, emotional mechanic. Revolt is a great mechanic. Revolt is a great mechanic. It, it's so flavorful. The idea that when my, when my permanent either gets killed or exiled or arrested or, or, or delayed, you know, by cops showing up and inflicting a curfew or whatever, then boom, I get to revolt against that, you know, meddling with my side. And it was a strong, that was a, that was a win. That's a great mechanic on its own. But the set, triggers revolt on your side most of the time most of the ways to trigger to revolt are creatures are you returning your own creatures or are you exiling your own creatures or are you killing your own creatures and that that beautiful mechanic and that emotional experience that it promised when you actually play with it you start feeling like this is not revolt it's it's it, the synergy has overtaken the emotional core of the mechanic the flavor that was promised just moved too far from that natural feeling. It didn't feel intuitive anymore. You start instantly feeling that this doesn't make sense anymore. You, every time it happens, you go, that did not flavorfully work. And that's the problem with it, even though it's a wonderful mechanic. Even the, the, like What I was trying to say is, even though it's wonderful mechanically, even though it's wonderful flavorfully, it's everything else in the set that causes it to start falling. You can't let yourself get tunnel vision in a designery fashion. You can't let your designery I want to build cool synergies, start undermining the emotional synergies that you already had in place. It's like the design team proposed Revolt as some further type of invention mechanic and development kind of reflavored it somehow into this kind of Revolt. But it very much is still like you're inventing a revolution. You're not actually rebelling. Right, exactly. It's interesting in that you know, obviously it was proposed as a revolt mechanic, first and foremost, but it feels the other way around because of how much it's about you tinkering with your own little parts and crafting these awesome scenarios where everything gets revolt. You know, that tinkering and crafting and building up to a cool explosive turn doesn't capture the same feeling as, you know, the next turn or later in the turn after one of your creatures died in combat, you go, Viva Lava Resistance, and everything with revolt comes down and you suddenly turn the battlefield. The, the power of Morbid and Revolt is that they're comeback mechanics. They're meant to reward failure, losing. And when you start moving away from that comeback feeling, you really undermine the emotional triumph of the moment. You make it feel self-centered. Designers wanted to get clever. They wanted to create cool synergies that players would search for and solve puzzles. And in doing so, they moved away from what made the mechanic make sense, what what justified it emotionally in the set. Mm -hmm. It still works in every other way. It just it The key is reining yourself in. You know, going, I have to prioritize the emotions sometimes, even if it means I lose out on some cool, neat, you know, tricks and stuff. A big problem with that is that a lot of the tricks that designers come up with are really designery tricks. And especially so in the custom magic community, it's very often that you see a set that gets a little too masturbatory and 
where the the synergies that get created between the mechanics are a bit too on the nose perhaps even if you have that strong synergy like revolt plays really well right like from a mechanic standpoint but like you're saying you lose out on the emotional impact of it right it's still a fun gameplay experience but you miss out like you're saying on on that emotional impact in that immersion another good way to use emotional cards is as discovery moments I'm very much into the feeling of players discovering things. And discovering the flavor for things is another cool thing. So, for example, uh, I can't, I'll can't. i think of something that's a little more subtle. Like, meteorite is kind of obvious. But some players won't get it. I, in fact, I know I know a lot of my friends didn't understand what why meteorite dealt damage when it entered the battlefield. The art helps sell it, but it's more of a subtle effect. Um, one of my custom cards I made is a flying card that... Whenever it hits the opponent, you d- you draw a card and then discard a card, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And that's a cool that's a cool design. It works well, but it works really well when I called it Phantom Thief and made it a spirit rogue, hence why it flies. And when I said in the flavor text that it always leaves a calling card at its crimes, you steal something and then you leave your calling card, which is you discarding the card. That's clever. And. Yeah, it wor- it helps sell the mechanics of the card. It has nothing to do with the rest of the mechanics of the set. It's just a cool card. But the set is themed around crime. So I made sure that even though it's a good card that does mechanical rules, it felt like a criminal. And it's not obvious. I don't think you know the calling card pun helps in the fact I'm explaining it. But I think if you picked up that card in a booster pack, it might be a little bit before you went, calling card, I'm leaving a calling card. And you going, oh my god, that's clever, is a part of the joy of the emotional experience. Where now, every time you play it, you one, have the joy of, I figured out the, the, the riddle of that card. And two, you go, that, that fits well with the set. So, on, on that note of giving cards specific subtle interactions that just are, are awesome like that, one of the moments that I really, really enjoyed in, in that respect was I managed somehow or another in one of my Magic Origins drafts to get both Chandra and Chandra's Ignition. And it was really, really cool when I realized, wait a second, Chandra's Ignition, like her sparking mm. moment, her story card triggered off of Chandra will actually cause Chandra to flip to actually ignite her spark. And that was just super, super cool. That might still be considered to be like an obvious flavor moment. But for me, at least it was, it was really cool to kind of discover that. And that's the kind of thing that you can put into your set, generate some new flavor that's like specific to your set that can really capture that experience of just going off or, you know, whatever experience you're trying to generate. Yeah. So one thing that we were talking about with regards to Revolt was kind of that schism between the status that it's trying to provide the player of you are in a state of Revolt, right, versus the actual how you got there is one of those things that really breaks player immersion, uh, or at least immersion in the world. So, you know, you need to have a consistent sense of what your status is. Yeah, I think that that's kind of a good way to look at the revolt issue i think consistency is the key word yeah exactly you want to be consistent about what's going on in the world and and make sure that your gameplay matches up with that if you can i i did mention yeah the the number one reason to create lots of individual car designs is that it helps you create the consistent feeling you want it's it's about as fan very simply you can't think of you know honestly and with a lot of my sets that i've done in my spare time the ones that i've never really seen the dawn of light because i don't have a lot of time uh and with Tesla, what I should have done with Tesla is 
you earmark cards for mechanics. You go, I want to have an as fan of this mechanic. But you also need to be very careful to have an as fan of emotion. These individual cards increase your as fan without having to rely on your mechanics. You don't want all the emotion to be embedded in your mechanics. You want individual cards to promise that emotion as well. You don't even have to make it super play emotionally as long as you have really compelling flavor. Like Ghostly Possession, for example, in Innistrad, that's not really a scary card. It's not really a looming, impending doom card. But it's got a very creepy art, and it's got very creepy flavor. So it works. It, it, it sells itself in the set. That's not. A, I would not call that the best experiential card, but it does increase your as-fan of immersion. You don't want to have that card be flavored as anything but a scary gothic card. And being able to very lightly increase your as-fan in that way is important for individual cards. You never want a card in a pack to appear that breaks the immersion. you got to think of booster packs as glimpses into the world, and you got to think of draft decks and limited decks as experiences in that world, stories that are being told in that world. And any element of a story that just doesn't make sense is not an element you want to include. I do think it's a really interesting idea that you're talking about the as-fan of the emotional impact. What I'm hearing between the lines there is that you don't necessarily need to have the emotional impact be present on every single card. You do not. Yeah. And I think it's actually really important that it's not present on every single card because players are going to need a break from whatever emotion that you're trying to evoke. Correct. So, one, you need mechanical roles fulfilled. And, you know, very often you simply cannot achieve every single mechanical role through emotion. Um, even in, you know, Shadows of Innistrad has, I mean, not Shadows, just Innistrad. Innistrad does this. It, Silver Chase Fox, not gothic, not scary. It's a fox. I, I, when I think Victorian gothic horror, I do not think foxes. And it's, it's chasing silver, I guess, you know, something to do with silver. That works. It's werewolf themed. It sacrifices itself. Sure, that's kind of death. But it does not need to contribute to the emotional aspect because it serves far more important of a mechanical role. Just like how in a set, you gotta choose between certain cards for your skeleton. You know, I need a flying creature in this spot, but I also need this kind of creature. Which one's more important to my set? You also have to choose between trying to choose everything. You can't make every card do everything. You gotta pick between mechanics. You gotta pick between emotion. You gotta pick between flavor sometimes, although hopefully that goes hand in hand with emotion. And eventually, sometimes you just gotta pick things that work. But you should never make a card not fulfill any roles. Even cards like, you know, Throbbing Purebloods, whatever, the bland vanilla cards, at least that's filling a mechanical role. At least it's giving new players a break by giving them a card with no text on it, you know? And even the flavor text there still includes the sense of um, tension and suspense. Those cards are, those dogs in the art are freaking out. The guy is saying, when they get nervous, I get my crossbow, you know? You read that card and you still get a bit of flavor and role building. It's not a complete miss. It's not like the Beatles in Kaladesh, which I didn't like particularly. Right. Vanilla cards give you an opportunity to really showcase the flavor of what's going on. There are much more dedicated cards for that emotional ass fan. Another key bit, I guess another key thing to remember is that emotional experiences do not have to be complicated. Players can fill in a lot of the gaps. And that's what the emotional experience does. That's the utility of it. Just like how flavor can bind very unusual mechanics or bring additional depth to something very simple. Your emotional experience can do the same. If your players know that they're supposed to be feeling like an explorer, some cards will start to make a little more sense. 
some simple mechanics when you when you embed them in a set with a specific feeling to them start to feel different. They start to actually have additional depth to them. Um, you know, like for a really simple example, I guess, just hysterical blindness. Terrible card, honestly. I don't think I, I don't think that's actually a good card in this chart. Probably one of the few cards that's not very good for any deck. But it's great flavor. It does a mechanical role. It's super simple. It's a core set style mechanic. Like that's the kind of thing they give blue every time because that's something that blue does. But the flavor really sells that as a ghastly event when it occurs. You stare at that art and you just see more and more, ugh, you know? Mm-hmm. That was actually one of my favorite cards to just look at during and, this run. Uh, yeah, you don't need to, you don't need to create a very intricate story in the card. You don't need billions of lines of text to pull something off. You can kind of trust in the player to go that some things will make sense. That they, that they will realize that something else is going on when you say that specific thing. For sure. Well, I think we've got a pretty good grasp of why experiences are really important to impart through designs, and we've given at least some ideas about how people can tailor their their designs to give that experience to their players. So we've accomplished this episode's design goal, I I would say. I would agree. Cool. Well, uh, while we start to wrap things up here, Trevor, do you have any shout-outs or anything like that you'd like to give? Um, I definitely want to recommend the Custom Magic subreddit on Reddit and their Discord as well. Uh, I am super into their Discord. It's really easy to get put together playtests. It's really easy to get advice. Honestly, joining that Discord, not only being able to playtest other sets and steal their best ideas and you know go, that's great, and that's mine now, it's also great because I get so much more rigor over my science. Um, every single Magic community really deserves a shout-out. Like Magic Salvation forums... Uh, the Magic Set Editor forums. I love those. I love that place. Um, all those communities really create a network, create friends, create people that you can trust and peers that you can rely upon, and just have every one of those places look over all your stuff. I'd also like to specifically shout out Ruben Covington for taking over for Tesla and for just being a constant friend and source of support when I'm designing cards. Awesome. And where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you're up to? Um. I am available on Goblin Artisan still. Uh, you can click my name on the right and you'll get some contact information. I have a Twitter, Inanimate Games. Um, I am Tierev on Reddit, which is tougher to pronounce than it is to spell. Uh, and on Magic Salvation, I'm Turbo Justice. Awesome. Well, Trevor, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. You can get in contact with the podcast by emailing cardographycast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud to keep up with the latest content. We'll see you next week.